Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Rob Long, one of the founders and editors at Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to hear is a production of Ricochet.com, and if you haven't gone to visit us on the web, we invite you to do so. We are the fastest-growing, smartest, most civil conversation anywhere on the internet, and we invite you to become a member. Now, as a member, you get all the podcasts, including our famous flagship podcast between me, Peter Robinson, and James Lilacs comes out weekly. You also get to comment and contribute to the conversations on the member feed and the main feed. And now, for the cost of a yearly membership, you also get a year-long subscription to National Review Digital. That's the digital version of the magazine. So now you can read me and James Lilacs and Mark Stein and all of our Ricochet friends who are crossover between Ricochet and National Review in a handy PDF format. So if you subscribe to Ricochet, and become a member, you get Ricochet and the podcasts and the conversations and now a year's subscription to National Review Digital. Please go to ricochet.com and join today. Hello and welcome to the Jonah Goldberg, John Fedora's Rob Long podcast on Ricochet. Um, I guess they're calling it the Glop podcast, but I'm not sure I like that. The Glop doesn't sound as um, as dashing as it should for those of us who are on it. I am Rob Long coming to you from rainy uh, Southern uh, California today. And on the line with me as always is Jonah Goldberg from Washington, D.C. Jonah, how are you? I'm well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. And uh, also joining us a little, uh, a little bit frazzled from a budget meeting. We'll have to explain. Is John? Uh, it's John Podoritz from New York City. John, how are you? I'm very well and excited to be humiliated as I usually am on this podcast. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, you should know it comes from Ricochet.com. Ricochet.com. Please go and find it. It is the fa- fast-growing. A smart center right place for conversation and political discussion and debate, and it is the it is the lighthouse that's going to lead us away from these troubled times. We need your membership. We need your voice. We need you to join. Please do. Um, meanwhile, uh, can we just talk? I mean, look, we, you, the three of us have not spoken since um, since the the great disaster of uh, of uh, election day. We but call I, the Nakba. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but it sounds right. But I uh, can we can we just skip over that and just talk about is anybody else having a little bit of fun with the giant bloodletting going on in the uh, Republican Party, the night of long knives, or or is that is that not happening enough? I was expecting more, but I, I'm still enjoying it. The uh, the uh, the recriminations and the finger pointing, or am I just a bad person? Well, um, I. I wasn't I wasn't finding it, you know, horrible until uh yesterday when uh Stuart Stevens, the manager of the Romney campaign, decided to publish an op-ed uh in the Washington Post in which he uh in which he explained that the only problem with the Romney campaign <laughs> was that it had lost exactly. and otherwise it was just great. Yeah, he did a great job. He just just didn't which win. I think which I think may go down in the annals of um, delusion. Yes. Rather, you know, I, I, I you know, it's it's zealot like and it's uh, delusionary qualities, um, and I feel bad for him because he seems not to have a friend who could have told him that that was an unwise piece to write, and I I, I found that oddly painful because it indicated the degree to which. You know, you can look at something straight in the face, right? And anybody can come to any conclusion. As a result, we no longer have a shared frame of reference about anything. Such even even a drubbing of the election day. Yeah, and a campaign manager of a losing <laughs> campaign can say hey, that won. it went well, except for the loss. Really indicates a sort of loss of any connection to the English language to you know, simple logic or reason. But I kind of liked it. It had this feeling of like the director of the play that Lincoln went to 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. Not, not, spent not like a, yeah. nine out of ten paragraphs talking about how great the play was, and then oh yeah, by the way, you yeah, know, yeah, that's right. Well, obviously the second act was uh, <laughs> the enjoyment. The audience enjoyment of the second act was ruined, but I think overall, I think it was you know they seemed to enjoy the the the, the interstitial stuff, and a lot of the jokes worked. I didn't expect to work, and yeah, I can see that. Barring I mean, the disruption, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think. I'm sorry, we keep. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I don't think the Romney campaign was a disaster. In fact, I think that Romney himself ran the best campaign that Mitt Romney could have run. And that the issue had to do with the fact that he was the candidate, that what happened happened. He got, you know, as as the dust settles, you know, he will have ended up with about a million more votes than John McCain did. That doesn't sound great, yeah. but it's only a million and a half less than George Bush got in 2004. It still, it still has to be marked down as the fourth or fifth largest vote total in American history. Huh. I don't think that it was a disaster. You know, McGovern in 72 was a disaster. He got 39% of the vote, you know. Mondale was a disaster. He won Minnesota and D.C. You know, I mean... He won, you know, he lost 49 states. So those are world historical disasters. This is not, this is a three point, three and a half point loss. Having said that, when the campaign manager himself doesn't have the good grace to kind of quietly allow the <laughs> yeah. party to kind of go through the process of understanding what had just happened. Um, is an indication of another form of brokenness in our political culture. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to define it, but it's real. That uh, should not have happened. But yeah, I mean, that's. I guess what I, I, I want the bloodletting. I want, you know, I want recriminations. I want at least, you know, I, I think at least three or four months of, uh, of purges and show trials and uh, public hangings. I mean, but the, I mean, but there I, are. It's happening. It yeah, is well, happening, and it's crazy. It is crazy because the recriminations in the show trials now involve <laughs> uh, tea partiers saying, hey, your guys lost, so you got no business telling us what to do, when right. in fact, as many Tea Party candidates lost Senate races as mainstream Republicans lost Senate races. Everybody lost. Every faction in the Republican Party lost. Nobody gained. The only gain that, you know, that was made was a kind of retention of the House of Representatives after that huge victory. But in no way can the bloodletting let anybody off the hook. So it's got a weird quality to it because I like that. Can you look at the field in 2012, the Republican field, and say, if only they had nominated Herman Cain <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, no. I, you know, I, I hear you. I hear you. But still, I, okay. I, I like I, I just I like I, I, I like punishment. I, I like that. I think our side should be stand up for that. I mean, you know, we have a whole bunch of uh, of uh, of um, a party uh, uh, operatives who are completely who failed, who should no longer be, uh, you know, they should be stripped of their pundit rights. We have a whole bunch of people who should really just be marched out in, into the desert. Um, but let's do it. I mean, why not? Like, well, you want Festivus to come early this year? <laughs> I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's 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 Festivus time. Let's let's not. You know, we don't have to slow down. That's true. Yeah, no, am, I, 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 it, am I the only one who's making a making a list of people I'd like to roast alive? Yeah, but the the point. My my. I guess my problem is is that there's a lot of conversations about making those lists, but there are not a lot of people actually going out in public and reading from them. No, that's true. Uh, you know, you're not hearing a lot of people. I mean, you hear, you're having a lot of conversations away from television cameras and op-ed pages about how scandalously Dick Morris has comported himself. Um, and I don't mean in terms of, you know, uh, various things at the Jefferson Hotel. Just um, uh, he, um But there's not a lot of people talking about how we should never again listen to Dick Morris, right? I mean, it, I haven't seen it myself, so I don't want to slander the guy if I have this wrong, but a couple of people told me that he wrote something on his website explaining that he actually did know that Romney was going to lose, but he felt he owed it to uh, the <laughs> movement to lie about it in order to keep up turnout for congressional races. And yeah. I, got, I keep meaning to go look that up, but um, so I could have that wrong. But I mean, I, I just I, I, I didn't want to I, 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 I publish any spoilers. 
<laughs> exactly. I, mean, I, I personally, I mean, I agree with you on a sort of intellectual level. I, I think one of the things that has generally made the Republican Party and the conservative movement stronger is that we have these big arguments about where our principles are. Yeah. And we should have what we, we, we really need to have those again. Uh, you and I were both on this National Review cruise, and there was a lot of talk about changing our orientation on immigration and, and, and the, the limits of doing that and all that. But uh, I, I think we need an even bigger public you know, let's put all our cards on the table kind right. of conversation. And I'm not sure it's happening as much as I would like. Well, you yeah. know, the way the way I see what has been happening since is something striking uh, is that the almost complete public focus, including on the left, is on the condition of the Republican Party, despite the fact that Barack Obama won a historic, you know, second term victory. Um, we're not talking about what Barack Obama is going to do in the second term, except about what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks with the fiscal cliff. We're not talking about what his agenda is. Most of the common conversation is about the parlous condition of the GOP. And yeah, that, is a like very interest, that is a very interesting fact, if you think about it, because it indicates a degree to which, uh, as I say in this uh, long piece I published, uh, which you can read at the Commentary Magazine website, that this was an election of no substance whatsoever. Obama did not want to run on issues, and Romney wanted to run away from issues. And as a result, we have absolutely no sense of what is going to happen over the next four years, except for the implementation of Obamacare, which, by the way, is something that Obama didn't want to talk about during the campaign. Right. We have no idea what he wants to do. We have no idea where he's going to go. We have no idea what kinds of policies he is going to enumerate or defend or push. And nonetheless, no one is interested in that, including liberals and leftists. They're not interested. What they want is to watch the Republican Party burn. And Republicans want to watch the Republican Party burn because they all have delusions that that, <laughs> that the other guy is responsible for this defeat. You, I'll don't, give you, you a quick don't believe example. wait, you don't believe in a cleansing fire? I a don't cleansing, believe in a cleansing purging, fire. sanctifying I believe, blame. <laughs> I don't believe in that if it's being lit by one of the people who needs to be cleansed. Well what if it's what is a giant auto de fe? We all kind of catch ourselves on fire and run around the village uh, burning to death and let and, and our ashes are used to new to to provide nutrients for a new growth. Okay, well that that would be I think that would be acceptable. But I'll give you an example, <laughs> okay. a quick example. Okay, so I think everybody can understand that you know one of the perhaps the key moment that made Mitt Romney unelectable, despite a really strong effort in the last you know six weeks, was the forty-seven the release of the forty-seven percent video. Right. So now here's what's interesting about that. The idea that 47% of the public is becoming, you know, a bunch of gadabout victim, you know, they're not paying taxes and they're, they're just taking and all of that. That idea is not a, you know, moderate Massachusetts, you know, establishment Republican idea that he was, you know, uh, you know, telling to all of his fat cat friends who believe the same thing. That is an idea that was first spelled out during the 2011 primary season by Michelle Bachman, a Tea Party candidate, mm -hmm. who said, we must, do, we must do everything in our power to make sure that every single person in this country pays federal taxes. Now, she is an anti-establishment candidate. Her policy, in part, was that we needed to make sure that everyone, this is after 30 years of the Republican Party pushing, you know, and fighting to push, you know, the idea that the federal government should take as little money from the public as possible. And she, the Tea Partier, introduced to the election the idea that would eventually take full blossom as the 47% video. Everybody is guilty, as, as, uh, right. as the prince says at the end of Romeo and Juliet. All are punished. Right. Okay, then. Nobody then... gets. Nobody gets a ticket out of this. All right, but all right, but then who? But, uh, who who's who, who? Who do we march to re-education camps? I mean, I would certainly. I mean, I'll start. Right. I think we should march the uh, Republican primary voters in Missouri to uh, to re-education. They they failed. They they nominated somehow by by hook or by crook. They nominated a crazy person who hurt us. So how about that? I'll start there. I'll start with the voters. They they deserve to be punished. Am I the only one? 
Well, sure, they deserve. Absolutely, they deserve to be punished. All right, Jonah, and, who's on your and list? They are, and they are being punished because they got Claire McCaskill as their set, which was their their one desideratum hope was that they were not uh, they were not going to have to have Claire McCaskill as their senator again. And yet there they and they 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 danced to her tune. She put money behind Todd Akin and pushed him over the top. Democrats put money in. People told them, Sarah Stillman's people told them that this was happening, and they went for it anyway. So let them lie in that bed. Congratulations to them. <laughs> All right, Jonah, who's on your list? Well, I, I, and, don't I, dissent. You, we, 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 if you're if you're not going to name enemies of the of the Republican state, then maybe you are one. No, no, no. <laughs> um, you know, we didn't name a specific purpose of the voters of Missouri, and I, I like some people in Missouri, but I, I would say. Whoever it is, I don't know the name of this person. Maybe it's one of, you know, I don't know how specifically it is, but advising Republican candidates that they have to somehow uh, uh, say that they think Earth might be 6,000 years old uh, to shut up. Now, I, I don't, <laughs> I understand wanting to respect everybody's perspective and all of that, and I, I am by no means one of these guys who thinks that. Republican Party should throw out social social conservatives, um, just in order to get you know the Alan Alda vote or something. I've never understood who we're supposed to replace the thirty million social conservatives with, but um, don't have to say that you think. I mean, I I don't know what evangelical voter is going to say. Well, you know, I really like Rubio's tax plan, or I really think you know Bobby Jindal's right on immigration or whatever. And then oh, but wait, he thinks the Earth is more than five thousand years old. Well, screw oh, him. I'm not a yeah. <laughs> voters, and I've met I've, <laughs> commitment to a young Earth. I've never met any of them who think that their presidential candidate has to agree with them, and because um, we've never had a presidential candidate who believes in some of that stuff, and so there's this sort of like this this preemptory, this preemptive fear of punishment from voters who I'm not sure. Are out there punishing candidates who right. who don't right. know that much, and it, and also whoever tells Republican candidates they have to give thoughtful, long answers to that question, rather than simply say well, that's a stupid question. Let's move on. I agree. I agree. Well, I, I, a little bit more Gingrich response to that's so be good. Okay, but but all right. So all right, you should have copped out. I'll 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 say it. I think it's I, I'll just be bold here. I think the time for 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 Carl Roveism is over. I think the winning by 50.01% and the making that your strategy is a mistake. You're going to probably win that way anyway, so you got to go for 60% just as a cushion. So I think I think uh, I think our operatives uh, we need new operatives. Well, that might be true. Our no, old operatives well, should be uh, should be marched into the uh, into the desert. Listen, every when you when you look at the history of presidential campaigns, almost every presidential campaign that is successful has been run this includes Karl Rove in 2000, it includes Axelrod and Pluff in 2008, and included Carville in, in 1992, Atwater, you know, in, in 84, uh, Jordan in 76. Every single campaign that you can point to had a guy who had a new idea about how to win and, and executed it and built a machine to win that election that time. That didn't happen this time on the Republican side. Uh, Rove did it in 2000 and 2004. Axelrod and Pluff now did it, and, and Messina now did it in 2008 and 2012. Stuart Stevens is somebody who ran a totally conventional, no new idea campaign based on the proposition that because of the particular strengths and weaknesses of his own candidate, they could create an issue set that would that would largely defeat Obama on his own terms. Meanwhile, as we now know, Obama is spending a billion dollars building this, you know, data mining, you know, massive data mining machine where they're doing things like they have dorm can they have they have uh, precinct captains on on floors of every dorm in every college, carrying people to the polls for early voting. And simply sort of creating votes where there weren't votes, you know, to be had, uh, even so getting what will now likely be five to six percent fewer votes than Obama got in 2008 because of the condition of the country, because, you know, he actually did worse. He did worse this time than last time. He is the first pre he is the first reelected president who will be have been reelected with a smaller vote total. Right. 
and a fewer number of votes in the Electoral College both. That's never happened before. Uh, also indicating how beatable he was, right? And in fact, this does not sound no... like a bloodletting. This sounds. <laughs> this is not satisfying. But what do you want? Who do you want to? Who? Let, let me put it this way. The key issue in this campaign, in my view, was that there are you know deep economic woes, fears, and anxieties in the United States, right? And the Republican Party decided to say, and this is everybody, that they were due to Barack Obama mm -hmm. or his policies. Right. And that's just not true. It's it's a it's it's a misapprehension of the condition of the of the of the electorate and its worries. You know, the electorate finds itself in a position where their homes are worth 30 to 35% less than they were in 2007. Their 401ks are about where they were in 2007, so there was right. no growth for 5 or 6 years. The 88% of people who never lost their job didn't get the same kind of raises, don't have the same kind of job mobility because they can't sell their homes without, a, without losing a lot of money, or there are no new jobs to be had. And, you know, um, a lot of people from, you know, uh, Jonah's colleague Ramesh Panuro to Ross Douthat and Rehan Salam five or six years, were warning mm -hmm. that a Republican Party that does not tailor its message to the problems of the middle class is a party that is going to hollow itself out. And that is exactly what has happened. When the economic message of a campaign is that we're going to make everything possible for entrepreneurs to be have a clear field right. to do great right. work, right. that's fine. But you know, the number of people every entrepreneur will vote for entrepreneurs you. is very small. Every entrepreneur will vote for you, and then the uh, and, and an actual uh, you know salaried workers probably won't. I, I I sort of can. All right, all right, that's fine. So so I'm I'm. I, I'm not going to be satisfied with a gleeful tossing overboard of um, of uh, our failed operatives, or our uh, our our our, our uh, fact our our, our short-sighted factions or any of that stuff. We're just going to kind of plug along. I mean, I <laughs> I was I was hoping for more. I'll be honest. I was hoping for more. Part of the fun, or if there's any fun to losing, is that you get to sort of. Uh, Engage in a little circular firing squadism. I don't think that's a that's not. I don't actually. I'm not even being facetious. I don't think it's a bad thing to 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 put a little stink on everybody. And and right now, it kind of feels like because everybody's a little bit culpable, no one's really doing it. And I kind of feel like we 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 need to we need to run some people out of town. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll start again. I'll say one more. I'll, I'll even. I'm now baiting you here. But here's what I would say. Uh, and I, I know I get in big trouble for this, but I, but I, I mean it. I, we live in a dream world, our side, and we tend to watch uh, Fox News and we tend to listen to Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is a very smart guy, and I, uh, I agree with him on all sorts of policy, but he's never run for anything. And the idea that you know, we, we – I can even hear some, from some conservative friends of mine forget that you have to run in a big country and you need a lot of people to vote for you, and they don't listen to Rush Limbaugh. They don't. And they may not even like Rush Limbaugh, but they still need to vote for you if you want to be president. And our side sometimes feels very comfortable as it glides its way into being essentially the green party of the right. Small, um, focused, uh, highly disciplined, but meaningless. Well, I mean, part of the problem with the bloodletting strategy in the first place, not to, I mean, not to go back to your previous point, is that you know, the party uh, can't lose anybody because it's not big enough. So the idea that what you're first going to do is limit your numbers – by throwing people out, which is a bizarre. Um, no, no, I don't mean know. throwing people out. I just, I no, said, that's not what you mean, but that's what a lot of people mean. Yeah, um, I, I don't know, Joan. Am I being am I being uh, childish? Uh, no, <laughs> I, mean, I, no, I think you're pointing to uh, getting to your rush point. I mean, I, I think you know the way I, I've been describing for years because I keep getting, I used to get asked all the time to defend Rush or really Glenn Beck or Ann Coulter or whoever. And um, um, and first of all, part of the problem with that is I I resent how conservatives constantly have to defend these figures that have been demonized right. or rich, allowing themselves to be demonized, uh, uh, who aren't elected in anything. I mean, why do I have to have an, a strong opinion about Ann Coulter or Grover Norquist or Rush Limbaugh or any of these guys? Um, the only people who are asking about it tend to be, with the exception of you, who's sort of a Bolshevik anyway. Um, you know, <laughs> so the, yeah, and 
But that said, you know, the argument that I've always used or the analogy that I've always used is, is you know, conservatism is kind of like a symphony. And any good symphony is going to have that big gong thing and big percussions and loud horn sections and all of that. But it's also going to have fine woodwinds and subtle you know, strings and all that kind of stuff. And conservatism needs all of those things. I think there's a perfectly legitimate role for Rush Limbaugh and for Coulter and, and Beck and all those guys. The, the only thing I, I'm sort of willing to concede is that I think at times um, the notes are too much in favor of all of the strident stuff and not enough of the subtle stuff. And we've got a lot of great so, you know, subtle stuff out there. I mean, if you just look at the state of conservative intellectual conservative institutions from John's magazine and my magazine and the national, you know, the, the and national affairs and right. You can go on and on Claremont review of books um, to the various, you know, good think tanks. Um, there's plenty of people making fine, you know, subtle arguments about policy and nuance and all the rest. But the way conservative media has set itself up is that a lot of the intellectuals have been rendered into talking point generators for, uh, the loud people and right. what we could really use. And I, you know, uh, I think Peter Robinson and Ricochet does, you know, you guys do great stuff and uncommon knowledge and all that, but we really could, you know, there was a real advantage to having firing line back in the old days because mm-hmm. gave this sort of conduit, this mainstream conduit that people, that average people could see that showed the conservatives had a very intellectual side. And, yeah, we look smart. We look smart. I mean, no, nobody watched it, but it had power in the culture. Yeah, because people knew, oh, it's on PBS, so it must be must be good. It must be smart. It's like Downton Abbey, but for your brain. Um, so therefore, it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that we do miss that. We, we we do miss that kind of slightly elevated tone that we used to have. Although, um, uh, you know, we didn't win that many elections that way. But but it 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 was useful to get our our our, our thoughts out. I mean, all right. So that's culture. So part of what people have been saying over and over again is, hey, nothing's going to change until – I mean the, the depressing stuff from uh, Tuesday from Election Day was uh, all the young people um, are, are, are voting against us. And that suggests that all the, the, the left-wing cultural hegemony in the institutions and on TV and the movies, all of that suggests um, doom. Like, uh, and, and people can say, well, we should get the culture back. Um, how do we get the culture back? There's no way to get the culture back. I mean, look, there, some of this is, I think there's, um, I wouldn't call it blaming the victim, but, you know, if you had said 17 years ago or 18 years ago that the dominant um, force in cable news would be a right-wing news channel, everybody would have thought you were insane. In 1994, Paul Weirich started such a network. It was called the National Empowerment Network. I remember that. It was that. one of the that? most embarrassing things that was ever put on the air. <laughs> Were you on it? Later, two years later, <laughs> Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch started the Fox News channel, and there it is, and it is a cultural institution that was built instantly from the ground up by a major corporation with a, granted, with a, with a, with a, with a chief who was you know, an ideological yeah. conservative and saw a market opportunity this notion that the culture can't be changed and it's all impossible is ludicrous. Of course it can. The problem is that it can't be changed by saying, how do I change the culture? Things have to happen organically. I know some hedge fund people on the right who decided they wanted to change Hollywood yeah, and so they right. gave some people money to make never works. bad movies. Right. That's not the way it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. There's no way of telling how it's going to happen. But again, I think people are looking through the wrong end of the telescope. One of the reasons that the right you know, hasn't done very well since 2006 is that the policy effects of conservative or Republican governance simply weren't that great. And, you know, people didn't like what happened in Iraq after the first couple of years in Iraq, and people didn't like the look of the Republican Party uh, members in the House and their often bizarre uh, sexual uh, peccadilloes in 2006. And in 2008, you had John McCain, who had absolutely nothing to say about the financial meltdown, except that Wall Street looked strong to him. And 
Barack Obama promised change at a time when things were looking pretty bad. And if you then go forward to 2012, again, with this terrible anxiety, what if, was it that was yeah, being proposed? If you were 21 the, years old, if you were 21 years old, what was it that you were being not offered as a gift, but what was it that you were being told about Mitt Romney and the Republicans that would have had the slightest appeal to you? But even if you even if you if you zoom out and take a more uh, sort of a higher elevation view, it doesn't look like the country is moving in our direction. It moves like if you connect the dots from 1970 or 1965 or 1980, even the dots seem to be moving in the other way. And so the the, the argument of winning the culture is well, politically we're gonna you know we're gonna we're, Republicans will take the White House again. That's gonna happen. Republicans will probably take the Senate again. They may even get the trifecta. Who knows? That could happen. But when that has happened in the past, we have not moved to the right. We've simply slowed the move to the left. So the argument is take, take over the culture. Maybe you can convince people in, in ways that are not political. I always get that. People go, why don't you put a, put a conservative sitcom on? Well, <laughs> like my idea of hell is to like – have a conservative sitcom be like oh, could only is the only thing worse than a liberal sitcom I think, but that is a legi- that's a legitimate argument, don't you think? That's a legitimate argument, but there's this this is assumption that's made by both the left and a lot of people on the right that the culture, the pop culture, is indisputably and unequivocally liberal, and I, I think it's certainly true that the people who are the vast, vast majority of the people who are making popular culture are liberal. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the way the product is consumed and internalized and interpreted um, is necessarily liberal. I mean, you go back and you look at yeah, right. you know, 24, 24, you know, the left hated that show, uh, but it said all sorts of things about national security and how to handle crises that people on the right love. Uh, you look at television, one of the points I always like to think about sitcoms. Is, you know, all the sitcoms, they always have, have this language about how uh, whoever gets pregnant is pro-choice. But the second, she, second Rachel or whoever on Friends or whoever decides to actually have the baby, they immediately, and they always decide to have the baby. On none right. of these sitcoms right. do they ever have And once they decide to have a baby, they talk like pro-lifers. They talk about how I have to take care of my baby. They don't say how... My uterine contents should not be exposed. <laughs> and well, yeah, it's hard to make it hard for that to be either a setup or a punchline. <laughs> and, and even in the broader culture, look, I mean, this country has become in the last 25 years among the top cultural issues that um, have existed you know, uh, have been guns and abortion. And this country has moved to the right in the last 25 years on issues like gay marriage. We've moved to the quote-unquote left, but at the same time, we've also become much more libertarian. And that's one of the things that I think cuts against both right and left. Is popular culture is, is very libertarian because American culture is very libertarian. Right. And there's a strong sense of how the individual um, – yeah. and I think it's good or bad, right? I mean, hey, but the individual shapes – Hey, uh, Jonah, can I just uh, can I just stop you one minute? We're going to reconnect you because you're going in and out, and I and I suspect that you're actually saying something interesting. Um, uh, but and, and it's, I, it's probably twice as interesting because I can only hear half of, half of it. But we'll, we'll try to get the whole thing back. So, but listen, uh, you know, I just I want to chime in on one you know important point here, which is that there has been a general uh, proposition that you know. The popular culture and the news media and all that, they're propagandists for the left. Fine. So they are. They're not propagandists for the left. I would – however, part of the problem on the right is the is the inability to understand that you know, propaganda or no, arguments are arguments and arguing that – you know the argument that has succeeded with young people in relation to gay marriage for example is an argument that has succeeded in part because there hasn't been much of a counter argument the counter argument is this is not the way it has been this is not what marriage is this is not how we define marriage and the argument the argument that has been made in its behalf has been who are you to tell me whom i should love and i just want the same thing that you have and they just want the same kind of life that everybody else wants. 
And could anybody really be surprised after 20 years of advancing that argument that it would win against a sort of generalized um, traditionalism that had no that was is itself entirely defensive in nature? I'm not even arguing that it's right or wrong. I'm just sort yeah, of pointing right. out that the, the defeat, cultural defeat of certain kinds of conservative issues is too easily laid at the feet of the culture, you know, propagandizing for it. No, I agree with you. I agree, especially that that issue, because it just it does seem to me that it's uh, the, the argument people make about uh, against it, about marriage, often it lives in a world in which we do not have a 50 percent divorce rate. And so if you're a person voting and you hear your politician arguing against gay marriage who says, well, look, marriage is, marriage is the crucial building block of, of Western society. It's the most you – know, it's the bedrock principle of the Judeo-Christian values. And then you live in a world in which you everyone, every other person is touched by divorce. You start to think that maybe people making those arguments are either making them disingenuously, they're making another kind of an argument, or that they just live in a fantasy land, right? And yeah, it's I mean, a complete disconnect. I'm back, by the way. Um, can, do I sound okay now? You sound great. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's very smooth. So it's much kind better, of like, actually. You're like Barry White. Yeah. I'm like a smooth jazz kind of guy. Yeah, that's right. 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 Hey, it's K-Jazz here. <laughs> We're here with the Night Owls. Sit back, you, you crazy cats. Um, yeah, there's also, I mean, look, there's also, the, you know, this is an argument I have with, particularly with, with my favorite kinds of conservatives who really love ideas, and I count myself as one. I'm one of these guys who likes intellectual history and all that. Um but the simple fact is, is that technology does more to change culture than ideas do. And, you know, the car did more to unsettle stable traditional communities than any idea that escaped an East German lab, right? And um, – but the problem is, is that you can, you, can, you can have an argument with Nietzsche. You can't have an argument with uh, yeah. Buick. And so – we tend to have – it's like the drunk looking for his car keys where the light is good. We tend to focus on these pernicious, terrible ideas that we think are, are working like, like computer viruses undoing the culture when you know the birth control pill just had, a, had, had to have this enormous impact on the culture. And I think that cuts both ways. Right. You know, it's, it's liberals and particularly sort of the left, the, the environmental left, who, who like stasis – they don't like the idea of cheap energy allowing civilization to progress. They don't like the idea of waste, which is, you know, you, you can't have a modern economy without, you know, creating detritus and all that. And um, that's a function of, of, of technology as well. And I, I, I always say, you know, like these college kids, they, they love having – all of these techno technologically driven choices, these iPhones and computers, yeah. everything's on their terms, and yet they're voting for this the party that's the champion of the sort of a post office way of thinking. And that's what I, I, you know, I've said that before to people, to young people, and they, they look at you kind of as, with astonishment, and it doesn't quite the penny doesn't quite drop, but it, maybe it will. I mean, what's the first thing you do when you get a piece of technology for for six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred, a thousand dollars? You set your preferences. That's what people always say. I'm setting my preferences. Your Facebook news feed is yours. It's nobody else's. And we seem to be we seem to demand that kind of specificity and customization and service from all this technology, and yet we you're right the young people voted for uh, the second Walter Mondale administration. And I mean, I mean, if you pull back, it's 2012, right? You pull back, <laughs> yeah. So 20, it's still 2012, John. Yes. No. So Republicans, you know, were basically had the levers of power in their hands. In the previous decade, and I'm now not going to, you know, I'm not going to sort of. I think that a lot of blame was attached wrongly and all of that. But if you're, if you're 21, 22, 23 years old, 19, 24, what you know is that you, you know, George Bush became president. 9/11 happened. He did a lot of good things. We went into Iraq. It looked okay, but then things went sour. We never got Bin Laden. Katrina happened. And then there was this giant meltdown, right, this financial meltdown, and your parents are broke, and they don't have this, and everyone's worried, and you're taking on debt for college. And it doesn't really look like uh, the GOP or conservatives have all that much to promise you or tell you um, because things just weren't really that attractive uh, when you were growing up under the tutelage of, right. you know, a, you know, under 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 George W. Bush, whom I think extremely highly of, and I think this is an unfair rendering, but I can understand why 
uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats were able to exploit this. Now, the question has to be whether we are now entering into a period in which uh, in which people who are 11 and 12 and 10 and 9 and 8 will end up only knowing Barack Obama as right, president. Right. And we'll see what the next four years have to tell them. Are they going to like the look of of what life is going to be like in 2015 when Obamacare is implemented and everything is a disaster? If the economy go, if thing go, things go really well over the next two or three years, we are going to have a political realignment, not all that you know dissimilar to the Republican realignment after 1980. I don't really think that's in the cards. But you have to look at this and say, what was it a rational or irrational decision that was made by voters at the polls, right? And I don't think that you can really look at this and say simply of a certainty that it was irrational, that they decided to give Obama another chance because Romney did not make an effective enough case uh, as to why Obama shouldn't get a second term and why his term would be better than Obama's term. And all these, you know, Nazi, mm-hmm. all the Nazi Republicans doing Nazi things on the side didn't Should exactly Nazi or Nazi? Affect... Nazi. Nazi, okay. Nazi. <laughs> didn't exactly, you know, make, couldn't exactly sell the confidence level of, of, of these people in what they were, you know, what they were being asked to choose. So, you know, certain specific set of circumstances, Obama probably shouldn't have won re-election given, you know, how ineffectively he stewarded the economy. But there, but he did. And rather than sort of saying the American people are stupid and they're victims and they're now they're all this and they're all that and blah, everything, everything is terrible and the culture has corrupted them, maybe they made a rational choice. You know, the first thing to do is to presume that they made a rational choice, because unless you do that, you're simply trying to figure out how to negotiate your way you know, in an insane asylum. And Republicans will never win and I, will I, never have an answer to talk to them. That's interesting. I mean, I don't know whether Jonah had this experience, but I had this experience on a, a National Review cruise a couple weeks ago. And um, I'm sitting there and every pretty much every single cruiser I spoke to, and these are sort of successful people. A lot of them are you know just generally older because they can take a week off and go on a cruise. Um uh, there's a lot of empty nesters there, people who've worked hard in their lives and made some money and, and can afford to go on a cruise. And every single person at every table I was on, so six, tab- six dinner tables, 10 people apiece. That's, you know, 60 people, not a lot, but it's a, a lot of, it's a pretty good sample. They all had a very practical view of, of election day, all of them. And I think it happens when you're a businessman and you kind of, or whatever it is you do, and you're in the real world, you kind of get the first thing you say is, ah, the customer's always right. Let's, let's figure out what the customer wants because the customer's not buying what we're selling. And I kind of liked that. I, kind of, I, felt that. I felt reassured by that. I felt more reassured by the ordinary Republicans that I've met and the ordinary conservatives that I've met than I have by um, uh, pretty much all of the um, uh, official, officials in the Republican Party and the pundits, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I have two points on this. One is I, I think John's is right that you, get, you, you should err on the side of assuming voters are being rational. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, right? I mean, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they, in fact, do understand their own interests properly. If you look at what has happened to African Americans over the last four years, their poverty rate and all, and their unemployment rate and all of the rest, uh, nothing in the data would suggest to you that blacks should therefore vote something like 98%. Right. So, I mean, there are other things going on in there, which brings me to my second point. There is, and I think it's somewhat admirable, the general consensus among a lot of Republicans and conservatives is to not take the easy route and blame Mitt Romney. Um, You know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people like my colleague Ramesh Panuru and others who are to point out that Mitt Romney did better than most of the Senate candidates um, who were running as Republicans. Mitt Romney overperformed the Republican Party, not underperformed. Yeah. That's, and that's all fine and good, and it's worth pointing out, and I don't want to sort of take the easy way out and blame Mitt Romney for everything, but we can go too far the other way. Barack Obama won in large part because of his charismatic relationship with low-information low voters uh, and a great ground. Mitt Romney lost in no small part because he was a bad candidate. He did the best he could. I think John's absolutely right about that. I think Mitt Romney's a decent and honorable guy, but 
unlike other boring white guys that we conceivably could have put up, there was something just legitimately off-putting about Mitt Romney in his ability to convey a message, in his ability to look like a normal dude eating a corn dog at a state fair. He just <laughs> not a normal. He did not come across as a normal guy. His the, and I, I've been saying for two years. I'm sure I said it on several podcasts that this was the last election in American history where it was going to be a decided advantage to have a boring white guy on the ticket. And I always right. meant, but that, like now Mitch here's Hull- where I want to. Here's where I want to defend the Republicans that we were just attacking. I was just attacking. You guys were weaseling out. No, but I mean like Jonas said about the voters of Missouri. They didn't have a choice. Nobody had a choice. The most brilliant thing that happened in this campaign, as I again say in my commentary magazine article, was the Obama campaign letting it be known in the spring of 2011 that they were going to raise a billion dollars. They wouldn't have a primary challenger and that that all of that money was going to be aimed like a laser beam at one person's head. Right. And as a result of that, nobody in the A-list that we could think of in the Republican you know, lineup ran. They didn't run. Romney was the only guy, as somebody said to me, who showed up for the job interview in a suit so who are you going to pick? People <laughs> were desperate for somebody else. There was the Daniels boomlet and the Christie Wait, boomlet so, and the so Rubio problem, boomlet and the this so, and the that. And there so was if Rick was they Perry. Were too, they were too cowardly. We our, our candidates were too cowardly. They didn't. They it's didn't want not to stand cowardly. Up. Look what happened. Look what happened to Mitt Romney. In in Ohio, they spent two hundred million dollars in Ohio making it clear that he poisoned a woman and gave her cancer. I mean, you you know, what if your life is a little less pristine than Mitt Romney's or your family, there's been a little trouble or your father had a little difficulty yeah. or your wife, you know, something happened. She got a drunk driving ticket or something like that. And you want $100 million spent to attack your wife? I mean, th- this is something that happened. We know it happened. We saw it happening in real time. If Rick Perry had been able to be the Republican nominee, he would have walked into the nomination. He would have strolled right in. He got in the race in August. He was at 35% in the polls. People were desperate for an alternative <laughs> to Romney. And he could not do it. And so that Romney was the only possible choice. And given that, that's why I say he ran the best right. possible race that he meant Romney could run. And I think that's, that's how long, where... How long will we be parsing this election like i guess what i mean is like when when do we when do we talk about something else i mean i don't mean on this podcast because <laughs> to me it's endlessly fascinating but i also feel like maybe the better thing for us to do is just to turn the page and move on uh, as our side you right you can't turn the page and move on unless i'll give you an example okay so there's all this talk about the hispanic vote right and the hispanic vote going 50 points for the Democrats and oh my God, and what are we gonna do and all of that. And I think that, and having spent years in Jonah's creation, the corner, battling with Republicans on the issue of immigration, this doesn't surprise me in the least. Because as Marco Rubio said, it's a little hard to get people's vote when you wanna deport their grandmother. Mm -hmm. And if Republicans think that they can spend you know that the that the base and that the you know that the emotional drive of the Republican Party can be spent demonizing a pop the the fastest growing population in the country, then they will be consigned to a permanent minority. That was clear ten years ago. It was clear twenty years ago when Pete Wilson destroyed the Republican Party in California on right. precisely the same grounds on which this has now happened nationally. No. Republican candidate at the local or state level, at the state level, excuse me, not the local level, has won on a restrictive immigration platform anywhere in the country ever. Republicans have run in the House and in the Senate trying to use immigration as a wedge, as a, as a hot cultural wedge issue, and have lost. They lost in San Diego. They lost in Colorado in the Senate race when Tom Tancredo tried to run for Senate. It doesn't work. It never works. It hasn't worked. It's a good fundraiser. And I think it's also an issue that stands in for something much more um, emotionally and, 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 and economically serious, which is this question of lower middle class and middle class um, dislocation right. and the change right. in American society from being 
um, you know, a an assimilationist society to one that seems to be much more accommodationist than it ought to be. Having said that, this is a catastrophe, and unless people take the full measure of it and don't run away from it, this game is over. It may not be over in 2016, but it'll be over in 2024 because, you know, I, I, as sure as I am sitting here, the, the, the Republican Party is still suffering after 75,000 years of discussion of this. <laughs> why, why are Jews – why are Jews so liberal and why do Jews vote Republican and Democrat? Yeah, we're still asking that question and, and, uh, and we still lose Florida and – No, but you know why? You know why? Because Republicans were anti-Semites. That's why. Republicans were anti-Semites and they were isolationists 70 years ago. And it hasn't really, and nothing has really come along to wet to to, to dislocate this. No, no matter, so not even Israel. Not even Israel. A lot of work doesn't need to be done to change this view among a population much larger and much more seriously negative about these things than the Hispanics. Then right. you know this right. election has to be studied and its meaning has to be taken seriously. All right. Okay. All right. Because right. I told, I told them, I told them, I told them in the corner, and they didn't listen. I told them. <laughs> now, so the Jonah, country. did you buy any of that? Oh, I do buy. I mean, I buy a lot of it. Um, you know, uh, why did you buy it when it was on the corner? <laughs> I'm just I, I don't, th- I don't remember me arguing with with John about a lot of stuff. Um, I, I'm in the position of actually finding the arguments on both sides very good. Um, and one of the problems I have. Um, one of the things that drives me absolutely batty is how the Republican Party ended up being on the wrong side. Forget the policy, but of the narrative, of the story of the successful right. immigrant who comes here with nothing and becomes a, you know, a success. That is, in its heart and in its marrow, a conservative story. And, and yet we are somehow on the side of sort of being opposed to that. And that, that is just batty. And, you know, my view on the immigration stuff, and I, I think John is right. The Republican Party, um, you know, the, he's right with an asterisk, right? Because one of the problems is, is that um, the evidence that Hispanic voters, you know, there's a lot of way, a, a, the way a lot of Republicans talk about Hispanics is they talk about them as if being Hispanic means you vote Democrat. And the evidence is, is that that's not really the case. One of the reasons why Hispanics vote Democrat is because Hispanics are so disproportionately low income. And if you um, if you wait until Hispanics become wealthy or at least middle class, they tend to look like any other voter. Doesn't mean they all vote Republican, but you can't really tell a lot about their voting behavior by their ethnicity. And I think that one of the things and and this is what troubles me. Uh, what's his name? Jason Riley had a great piece in The Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago noting that. Um, Ethnic groups that, that have a collective strategy of relying on government for their prosperity take generations longer to get wealthy, right? So Jews and Asians didn't really rely on government, and they went from being absolutely um, destitute to being upper middle class or rich in this generation, maybe two. Um, Irish, they worked through political machines. Blacks obviously have a deep, you know, long history of working right. with, with government. And, um, and it took them so much longer to get prosperous. And one of my concerns is that not because I think Democrats have any interest in keeping Hispanics poor, but they do have a deep and abiding interest in keeping Hispanics Democrats. Right, and in the tent. In the tent and appealing to them through government programs that ultimately will hold back Hispanics and have the perverse you know, consequence of actually keeping them Democrats. And Republicans have to figure out a way to explain to a lot of these constituencies and all these ethnic groups that the Democratic Party is simply failing them. And that is, a, that is an argument that Republicans should be able to make, but they're, they're not very effective at it. Right, but look at this. In 2004, George Bush got something like 40% of the Hispanic vote, and he said, I'm going to do comprehensive immigration reform, and the world of talk show radio right. and people went absolutely ballistic crazy, so much so that Rush Limbaugh, who was himself an open borders pro-immigration guy, I believe found it necessary to kind of soften or harden his position because he was – he found himself for the first time in his career crosswise of his own listenership constituency, which was – 
which had decided that this was a bridge too far and no farther. And the simple fact of the matter is that the Republican Party was on a positive trajectory and it went negative really, 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 really fast. And so I don't necessarily think that it can it's going to take decades to turn things around with Hispanics. Obviously, 44% is not 51%, but it's not so bad. Rick Perry does fine in Texas with them. You know, um, th this is a very serious business. And, and yeah. I think a, a lot of what a lot of what is going on here is a is a fundamental misapprehension about where how the country feels about a lot of this. Um, Republicans hate it. The country doesn't mind. Uh, on a cheerier. Wait, did uh, you guys see? Did you guys see Life of Pi? I've not. I haven't seen it either. It's great. It is great. I, I realized that was <laughs> did not bother make a. By the way, yet, but it's I, really, I believe, really, really good. I believe you, but I'm very concerned because you know here in New York, every year or so, there's some story about a guy who is mauled because he has a tiger in his apartment in yeah. Harlem, and yeah. I don't think I think that movie provides a very bad message. No, no the for people. <laughs> Who think that they can make a nice home with a tiger on a raft? <laughs> yeah, they. There's. It's not a nice home. I assure you. Okay. You do not envy the the boy on the raft with the tiger. At no okay. point do you say, "Oh, that looks really cool." Um, it is beautifully shot, and the, the the effects are great. It's just really. I mean, it's it's one of those movies where you watch it and you think, "Oh, this is why all those effects were invented." It wasn't to create this giant robot that turns into a spaceship, whatever the hell that is. Or this giant, <laughs> the superheroes, all that crap that I can't stand. No, this is this is. It's really quite beautiful. Okay, uh, go ahead. Can you your question though? At any point in the boat, do we see the tiger take a dump? Um, no. Does he ever slip and fall on some cat feces of any kind? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. That that is uh, uh, that that particular aspect of actually of both of their experiences is not um, is not. It's no. a fable. It's a fable, Jonah. Yeah, there are no. Yeah, bodily issuing in yeah. a fable. But uh, you know, it, it, nor were there in 101 Dalmatians, and I, I guarantee you, if you had 101 Dalmatians in your house, you'd know it. There'd be no, uh, there'd be no making, there'd be no walking to the kitchen. That's for sure. Just, I, I am so willing to suspend my disbelief. <laughs> on no, but it's, it's always the little details that drive me crazy. Like in TV shows with the obviously empty coffee cups that people are carrying around and pretending to sip from. And this is like one of yeah. my great. Or when people are stuck in the desert and they never, you know, and like the chick never grows leg hair and he never grows a beard after they've been in out there. These, it's the little details that drive me crazy, even in these, these sorts of parables. And I, so I can live with the idea that the kid's stuck in a boat with a tiger because that's how the story has to proceed. Yeah, but, but where does everybody poop? That's what you want to know. Yeah. You get the penis over the side of the boat. Yeah, that's okay, not normal. Look, this that's is all not fine, normal. but I think we need to talk about something that's much <laughs> closer and dearer to our hearts, which is the appointment of former NBC president Jeff Zucker as the up. head of CNN. Now, Why Rob, did I not I'm bring sure that up? Worked with Jeff Zucker. Yes. I'm sure you know Jeff Zucker. Um, what's your what's your question? Is, is this no? I just want to point out that I I, I have in my hand some programming. Uh, I have breaking news. <laughs> Programming decisions being made by by Jeff Zucker on on CNN. For example, the supersizing of Piers Morgan tonight, so that it should actually run an hour and seventeen minutes instead of an hour, which I think is really uh, a fine right. idea. Because it seems and like of it course, runs two hours, but yeah. and of course the return of Matt LeBlanc to television on Morning Joey, which will replace. <laughs> Uh, American Morning, Morning in America. I'm the right, show that right. nobody watches on CNN at seven o'clock. Right, Morning um, Joe. Because I, okay. I, I think it's really great that Jeff Zucker, having driven NBC into the sewer, will now have an opportunity to drive CNN even further into the sewer. So right. I'm really, I'm really going to watch this with uh, with, with bated breath. You're forgetting that there's one at night. Will be uh, Candy Crowley in the city. <laughs> ah. <laughs> There's a lot of room. Hey, like a, I didn't make a Biggest Loser joke. I could have made a Biggest Loser joke in relation to Candy Crowley, and I didn't. So I, I just want to point that out. You could do like a Fear Factor thing with like a Wolf Factor situation kind of thing where like 
John King has to eat a bowl of worms while he reads the news. <laughs> yeah, or uh, or or, or uh, if you don't, if you can't figure out how to use that complicated graphics table, uh, you have to eat uh, you know a uh, cockroach or something. Uh, I actually feel like um, uh, this may be. This may not be a bad idea. I'm not a I'm not a uh, an admirer of Mr. Zucker's. I mean, I just uh, was too, uh, too close up to NBC to really admire what what he did not accomplish there. Um, uh, but uh, but at least there's at least there's somebody uh, at CNN who's in the TV business. You know, you talk to people at CNN and they always forget that they're in the TV business. They think they're in the uh, in the in the in the smart uh, too too cool for school business. Uh, and they forget that the number one show on CNN, the, the show that built the CNN franchise, was Crossfire with two people screaming at each other. It was always TV. They just never knew it. Yeah. I'm with CNN. Yeah. I used to be on contract at CNN. And, uh, hey, John, John, were you a contract on CNN? I was on contract at CNN before oh. Jonah was on contract oh, okay. at right. CNN. <laughs> right, right. I just want to point that out. I, I, I want to make sure that you contract. point that out. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jo- Jonah, you were a contract. Yeah, well, and just the part of the problem is, is, as you guys know, part of the revenue model for cable television networks is the payback you get for how many people demand you be on basic cable, right? I mean, it's it's your carriage, you get paid for it. That's one of the reasons why Fox makes so much money is because uh, I think second to ESPN, people demand it um, on their cable systems, and so they get a big kickback for it. CNN has a huge penetration in the market because people think it's just the news channel. It's like the g- generic right. news channel. Right. And so they like four or five hundred million dollars a year, regardless of the product they put out, because most of the people who watch CNN only do it when a space shuttle explodes. Right. Or, or in an airport. And so that's why they tune in and they don't watch the normal shows. And so the incentives for CNN to actually have shows that people want to watch for whatever reason has not been internalized into their business model. And it shows, you know? Yeah, it does show. It does show. Uh, unlike this business model, which is that we talk and talk and talk, and then we get to the funny stuff at the very end, which I have to say, uh, I, I need to figure that out. We need to put the dessert up front because that is my, my only show. The only rule of show business is funny stuff up front, dessert first. Uh, and instead we talked uh, kind of, uh, I mean, depressingly for a while about the Republican Party and the culture and then only got to the fun stuff at the end. So I promised to change that next time. Um, and you guys got to hold me to that. Um, I was just one last story. I was yeah. with my family over Thanksgiving and we were in the Atlanta airport about to get on a flight to D.C. And uh, this woman comes up to me and says – are you J- Jonah Goldberg? And um, I was like, uh, yeah. And I was standing there with my wife and daughter. And and I was expecting her to say, oh, I see you on Fox or whatever. Because the, to the extent that kind of stuff ever happens, it usually goes to Fox. And instead she says, as she takes out her, her, ear, her headphones, she says, I was just listening to you and John Pedorts and Rob Long on the Ricochet podcast. And she was like literally in real time listening to this, our last podcast as she came up to me in the airport. It's kind of cool. I, I don't know what to wow. say about that. I'm deeply moved. I am too. <laughs> I am surprised. Uh, that's, Did that's she have great. a Cinnabon? <laughs> that's the only thing that would make it better for you, right, John? That's was right. A I just want to know. I want to know if she was enjoying a tasty Cinnabon, <laughs> or perhaps Dippin' Dots would yeah, also the be. Cinnabon is delicious. That is the one thing. Yeah, that's right. So even if we we somehow won the White House, the Senate, and the and the House of Representatives, John would be saying, "Yeah, but it'd be better with a Cinnabon." A- everything is better with a Cinnabon. Everything's better with a Cinnabon. Uh, <laughs> Sponsor this podcast. <laughs> they really should Cinnabon, uh, delicious and uh, well. Actually, uh, Louis C.K. has got a great Cinnabon run, which I can't get into because it violates our code of conduct. But you should, uh, if you can, if you can, if you can Google it, it's funny. Um, hey, fellas, we've been on going on for uh, for over an hour, and I feel like that's just more too much value for even for our listeners, uh, and we need to close it down. Um, hey, uh, Jonah, are you going to be anywhere? You going to plug any appearances? Uh, no, my, finally my crazy track schedule was dying down, and I'm I'm home for a little while, which I'm excited about. Uh, John, should I ask you uh, if you're going to be anywhere, or or will that just enrage you? I will uh, I will be at uh, Snortles in uh, <laughs> in uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, on a uh, sure sure on a bill with uh, Gallagher and Carrot Top. Um, great, great. So I really I really hope you guys you know show up because there'll be a lot of uh, hijinks. Coming down to Snortles. And uh, with some big, big props. 
There'll be a lot of big props. We'll be exploding watermelons and, uh, you know, and the, and the amazing Crescent will be there. So please, please, please come by. It'll be, it's better than a Cinnabon. Uh, fellas, uh, until next time. All right. Hey, my, my piece for commentary is coming, I swear. I believe you. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> but when you send it in, Jonas, send it with a Cinnabon. Thank you. <laughs> See you, folks. Bye. Bye. And your wedding bells You lit the picture of contented Noel But from the onlooking fool who believed your eyes I wish this grave would open and go Join the conversation. Now watch my lips and feel